So we come now to the scripture. Let me ask you please to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, uh, we now come to your word and I pray uh, that we listen well, that you will help us, that you will take away any distraction, any obstacles that there may be outside of us or inside of us, whether it be in our minds, whether it be in our understanding, whether it be in our dispositions, that you would overcome any resistance, any obstacle to us hearing and believing and following this we pray in Jesus name amen please turn to 1 Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4 please i want to read verses 1 through 8 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 please if you have a bible on with you or anything that uh, you can look it up on there's bibles scattered around if you don't have a bible just take one of those those with you uh, as you leave, <clears throat> I don't know the page number in your Bible. In mine, it's 1107. That will help you not at all, probably. But uh, in the New Testament letters, uh, under the alphabetized section, in the T's, with Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus. So there you go. That's some help. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Please hear well the word of God. Finally, then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, we ask, really as we always do, what is the apostle? Thus, because this is not the word of man, but the word of God, what is God saying to us here? Well, he's speaking of, of sanctification, of, of, of holiness. This word sanctification, uh, holy, comes. it's the word holy really, to, to be sanctified, we could say, if we weren't going to be Grammatically or linguistically accurate, we would say to be sanctified is to be holified, if you will, to be made holy. And the word holy means to be set apart, to be separate. And we think of being sanctified, when we think of being holy, we think of being set apart by God for God. Right? To be sanctified, to be holy, is to be set apart. By God, for God. Paul has been speaking to this church about holiness from the very beginning. He noticed their own sanctification, their own holiness. He noted about their lives. For instance, in First Thessalonians in chapter 1, he writes verse 9. For they themselves, that is others who know of this church, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve or obey the living and true God. You see, the 
their, their holiness was known. They were set apart by God, for God. They turned from all other gods, if you will, to obey, to serve the true and living God, set apart by God, for God. And in fact, Paul writes of what it means to be holy in verse 13 of chapter 2. And we also thank God constantly for this, that yet when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, I'm sorry, I, want, I meant to read verse 12. I just missed it by one. It's close for me, but it uh, doesn't help you. Verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This holiness is walking, living, worthy, consistent with, in honor of God. That's what it means, set apart by God for God to live worthy, if you will, of him. He's the one who sets you apart. He's the one who calls you. He calls us into his kingdom and glory. His kingdom, his rule, which will obey him, you see. Um, serve him, obey him, please him, honor him, work worthy of him. He's the king. And the good news is that it's a glorious kingdom. This is both the command to walk worthy of him and it's an incentive because his kingdom is a glorious one. There isn't anyone wiser than God. Thus, he rules us in his kingdom wisely. There isn't any better wisdom. He rules his kingdom kingdom justly there isn't any better justice he rules his kingdom lovingly there isn't any greater love he is good there isn't any other kingdom better than this kingdom he is good and and so you see it's a glorious kingdom so so live in his kingdom worthy of his wisdom his goodness his power his love you see all of that and so it's a command and an incentive it says this is great this is an oppressive this is freedom. This is flourishing. This is the way I've made you to be. Come, I call you, separate you from the world, you see, to come and live in my kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom. Be holy, set apart by me, for me, you see. And then even in, in chapter four, he speaks of what it means, this holiness. It means to live to please him. That, that's why we... We, we try to know his commands. We obey his commands, not to be made worthy, if you will, <clears throat> but we desire to please him. His commands is, 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 are God's revelation of himself to us. This is what pleases me. And so we seek to know his commands. That's why the psalmist would say, I love your law. Why? Because he was just simply a rule keeper? No. He loved the law of God because this was God's revelation. And he said, when I know the law, I know what pleases you. And, and that's what makes me happy, to please you. So, so I love it, God, when you tell me about yourself. I love it, God, when you tell me how I'm to behave, how I'm to think, how I'm to act, how I'm to feel. I love it when you do that, because then, then it's clear to me how then I can please. That's why I love the law, not because I'm a box checker. But because it enables me to love you. you see? And so we're to, 
to please him. This is Paul's heart, he says in, in chapter 3 and, uh, and verse and verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is the end game. This is the goal of this. It's like when Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 1 that we've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's a great thing. It's a wonderful calling. It's a great gift of God. And so, so now he's calling this church to this sanctification, this, this, this holiness. And he's going to talk, as I mentioned last week, three areas. There could have been an enormous number of areas, I suppose. We can walk our way through the scripture and find different areas of holiness. But he's going to talk about sex. He's going to talk about work. He's going to talk about grief. How it is that we're to be holy there. And, and, and clearly, this is a, a letter written to a particular group of people at a particular place in a particular moment in time, these people of Thessalonica, he had heard from Timothy what was happening there. He was concerned for them that the tempter might come and tempt them. And he wanted to go and, and help them to supply what was lacking in their faith, meaning that, that, that he wanted to, to teach them, to, to enable them to stand firm in the faith. And so clearly this, this area of sexual intimacy, this area of sexual expression is one there was a concern to Paul for them, as, as well it would have been. In the ancient world, Thessalonica and Corinth, where, from which Paul wrote, sexual immorality, as we might understand it, was rampant. To think that anyone would limit sexual intimacy, sexual expression to a relationship between a man and a woman in monogamous, lifelong union was unthinkable. Does that remind you of any other time and place? See, it's unthinkable, really, in our day. Hardly anyone believes that. In fact, those who do believe it are often referred to as immoral, unjust, unloving, intolerant. And so the notion of sexual immorality, as the Bible understands it, has been turned on its ear. And because, you see, as we, we come, you see, to this notion of sexual intimacy, we go back uh, to God's establishment of the context for sexual intimacy. And it, it's in the Garden of Eden, really. And, and we know this passage, Genesis in chapter 2, after God lays out how it is that he created Adam, then Eve for him. And Adam, seeing her as... As, as like him but different, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, yet a compliment to him physically and in every other way. And so then God lays this out for us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become uh, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, 
God has established here in the Garden of Eden. And this is before sin. You know, people always say, why are you Christians so hung up about sex? And the answer is, we're not. We're simply not hung up about it. But there is a context in which it is right and good. And God lays out that context just like he does everything else in the context of our lives. We're not to trust our own, our own instincts, our own passions. Why? Because as we understand the, the biblical revelation, God creates that which is good. But then there is a, a fall, a sinful t- uh, action that corrupts and pollutes human beings from that time forward, you see. And so that corruption that's within us causes our passions and our desires to be distorted and untrustworthy. Untrustworthy. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. Either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it now is, has gone wrong, one or the other. And then Lewis, in his own testimony, writes, of course, being a Christian, I think it's the instinct that has gone wrong. You see, the way it was initially established is is here in the Garden of Eden before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned. He took these two people, this man and this woman whom he had created for each other. And he says, "This this is what I want for you. He says, I want in generations to come that a man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and hold fast language. I thought as a kid meant when I find her, I better grab her fast <laughs> so she doesn't get away. Uh, but, 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 but it holds fast. It, in the old language is cleave, you see. Cleave or cling to or be united with. It's a covenant word. We talk about covenant all the time as Presbyterian types. In the Bible, we do that because the Bible talks about covenant all the time. A covenant is a relationship where two parties come together or united on something. It could be as little as a business deal, I suppose. We went to, you know, but, but, but when the Bible speaks of covenant between God and his people. It's more than a business deal, right? It's a giving. It's a sharing of life, his life to us, our lives. I surrender all, you see. And there is a oneness that comes in that kind of covenant There's a a oneness in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a covenant oneness of us with God through Jesus. That we're joined together with him, right? There's a oneness in the body of Christ, right? Jesus prayed that they might be one that is us. They might be one even as he and the Father are one. There's a oneness there. But there's another oneness, you see. And this oneness happens between a man and a woman. God says to hold fast. It's a covenant oneness. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
Now certainly this is a reference to sexual intimacy. But it's more than that. See, one flesh, this word flesh means one's whole self, if you will. There is a a union of, of this man and this woman. So much so that it's no longer me, but we in their identity. We know that in the, in the, in the context of, 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 of marriage, that, 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 we, that we share the same name then, you see. We're known as an entity together. When, when we do a marriage ceremony, I always talk to the, the rehearsal about what it all means, what we're, why we're doing what we're doing. It isn't just the way Americans do a wedding, at least in my mind. It's, it, it's showing something, that, that a union is going to take place by way of God. And so if you can think, if you've been to a wedding, at least one of ours that we do here, that, that, that basically we've got, you know, dad and bride and groom over here and the pastor, he's kind of the most important one. And then you have, you have all these attendants, right? What's that mean? It means that we're in the presence of God. And these attendants are there as intercessors to ask God to join this couple as husband and wife. The pastor stands there, as the, frankly, as the very representative of God, to speak the very word of God, to join them together as husband and wife. You see, and we go through this, this ritual of, of there they are and we ask them questions. Are you going to take her to be your wife? Are you going to take him to be your husband? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? The dad says, I do. And at that moment, something happens. The groom goes, gets his bride. The dad goes and sits down. And then we do something. With the bride and groom and the pastor, we... We, we, we leave the floor and we walk up here. And the reason we walk up here is we're announcing something. That this couple is leaving. And now we want to see this couple as one flesh together. No longer to think about him without her. No longer to think about her without him. And they're no longer to think of each other Without the other one. They usually wear a ring. That reminds them or something. You see. I mean tangible. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's a token of the covenant. They make vows. Covenant vows. In essence. Give myself to you in every circumstance. In every situation until we die. That's, that's what takes place you see. Become one flesh. And the pastor usually gets to say something like, by the authority given to me as a minister of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, I declare you to be husband and wife. Wow. Right? And the benediction that God has joined together, that no one, nothing. I usually elaborate on that a bit, you know. Nothing. Tear apart. Together. They kiss. Woo. Then... They get introduced as Mr. and Mrs. And that's, that's who they're to be forever in our minds. This couple, you see, together, not one without the other. And then they, 
marriage is consummated, they become, please, naked and unashamed. They needn't be ashamed in front of each other. The next day, as we see them, they needn't be ashamed that they were together. Because God had said, no, this is, this is, this is good, you see. And my married children spend the night at my house. My sons-in-law can live. <laughs> Right? It's good. Yes. It's good. They needn't be ashamed. And in their nakedness, you see, they share, consummate, if you will, that which has already been joined together in heaven and on earth. And it's, it affects it in one sense. It renews it in another sense. It models it this union together. There's something that God has made about sexual intimacy that's different. For instance, we, we see this in a different context, but in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, and Paul is talking about sexual immorality to this church in Corinth. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He goes on to say, Do you not know, verse 16, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. It says, when you join yourself to someone with whom you haven't covenanted, there's still a joining together. Don't you know that? So he says, flee that. Don't, don't join without this covenant. Because you see, that joining is representative and affects, in some sense, this one flesh relationship. And so you see, this is why we're so exercised about this. This is why God is so exercised about this. Because it requires for this sexual intimacy to be good, to have covenant, to have the security, the permanence, the freedom. For it's a joining, it's a joining together. And you see, it's that very faithfulness, you see, that models, that reflects the very faithfulness that God has to us. He makes covenant with us. And God doesn't commit adultery. God doesn't leave us for another. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's what it means to covenant. I will give my life for you as he did in Jesus. You see, I will share this inheritance with you as he does in Jesus. And, and I'll keep it. I won't take it away. I, I won't forsake you, you see. So you see, we're one with him. And he says, that's what life is, you see. It's this oneness. And so I've given you this marriage and this sexual intimacy in the midst of that marriage, to model that, to show that, uh, to bring it about, to, to renew that. Uh, and so to show this covenant. And so 
Don't violate that. It's that significant, you see. And really, and really that's important. And so then Paul comes to them and says, here's an aspect of your holiness. Here's an aspect of your sanctification. It's almost like, one commentator put it, almost like a, 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 we're reading half of a conversation here. You know, it's, it's like Paul comes to them and he says, this is the will of God for you. Uh, you're a sanctification. And so they say, all right, give us an example. And what's that really mean, sanctification? How, how do we, what's holiness? He goes, well, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll talk to you about this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And they go, all right, how do we do that? And he says, well, each one of you uh, needs to know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, uh, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Oh, all right. So we're to control our own body. So it's a private thing. No, 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 no. It's more than a private thing. He says, it affects others, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You go, oh, so it, it's more than just a, a private thing. Yes, it's, it's more than just a private thing. Uh, your sexual sin affects Lots of people. So be careful there. I said, well, well, but, but Paul, this is so rampant in our culture. I mean, I mean it, it's so different than, than, than what anybody else could ever think or imagine. Uh, surely it's, it's not that big a deal. And, and then he goes on to say, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. He says, no, 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 no. This is no small thing. It's no small thing. Because you see it has implications. In your relationship with others, in your relationship with God, and his whole plan, you see. I say, all right, God, then could you, could you uh, summarize this for us? And Paul says, sure, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Really, Paul? Are you sure about this? He goes, oh, yeah. Whoever regard, disregards this, Disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, Paul says, we don't mess around with this. Some versions have, it were avoid, to avoid sexual immorality, but, but, but here I think better, abstain, stay away from. First Corinthians chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. So don't get close to it. It's that dangerous, you see abstain from it, flee it. And, and again, when the Bible uses sexual immorality, it means all sexual intimacy apart from sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in covenanted marriage. You read books and everybody will try to soften that and say, no, it means this and no, it means that. No, that's what it means. Simply means that. And so every sexual expression, every sexual thought, every lust, every passion, every action, apart from that which is related there, is sin, the Bible would say. We see rebelliousness against God. And that's what we're to abstain from, abstain from all of that. So you see, we must then need to learn to control our bodies. Now, just as an aside, uh, there, there is a translation issue here. So if you have uh, a Bible with footnotes and so forth, you, you'll find that some would translate this in what may seem to be rather odd. Mine has it, um, 
must learn how to take a wife for himself rather than control his own body. Um, I'll stick with what I have here in the ESV. Uh, but really, even if it's to take a wife, it's, it's in that same sort of understanding. Control your body, that is, take a wife. Don't share your body with others other than your wife. But, but there is this general sense of, of control, you, you see, of our own, of our own bodies. And he says, to control your body in holiness, that is to abstain from this impurity, and honor, that is to, to honor God, but also honor your own body. Don't dishonor your body by joining it up with one who isn't your husband or your wife. You see, any sexual expression outside of marriage is dishonorable. It's a dishonorable life. Dishonoring your own body, dishonoring the other, you say. Engaging in pornography is dishonoring, right? It's dishonoring to yourself. It's dishonoring to your spouse. It's dishonoring to your future spouse. It's dishonoring to the person that you're viewing, if you will. It's dishonoring the humanity that God has made. See, it just is. So Paul says, you must control your own, your own body. Everything else is dishonorable. He says, to do that is to live as if you don't know God. But you do know God. Since you know God, then control your body. And he says, you know, th- this has ripple effects, if you will. No one, that, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You see, it, it, it affects other people. When, when we hear that sexual intimacy, being sexually active with someone other than your spouse, doesn't really affect anybody, just satisfying an appetite, if you will, that's completely false. Now, I think probably most of the people in this room would go, oh, yeah, I know that, but, but come on. We don't always act like we know that. It's just, it's just false. It affects. It affects, if you're married, your spouse. Adultery affects your spouse. It affects the other person with whom you're having adultery, right? If you're not married, neither one of you, it affects the other person in their future. It affects you. You've been joined together, now ripped apart. It affects the children. In the families, it affects the children to come. Could you imagine the great blessing to children if there were no sexual immorality. The kids that wouldn't be in single parent families. The kids that wouldn't have been aborted. The kids that wouldn't be used in the sex trade slave industry. Right? Think of it. There were no sexual immorality. If sexual intimacy was contained 
and good and flourished and pleasing within the context of a man and a woman committed to one another, covenanted to one another to share a life. Wouldn't that be way better than anything we really know? Wouldn't the sacrifice even, couldn't we sell this? We can't, we've tried. Couldn't we sell this to the world? Wouldn't it just be better? Wouldn't the sacrifice of not being sexually intimate with anyone other than your lifelong spouse, wouldn't that be better for everybody? You see, And the sacrifice be minimal compared to the benefit gained. Why can't we embrace that? Read Genesis chapter 3 again. And we've become deceived and live in death. And Paul says, you know, God is not indifferent to this. I can't tell you how many times I've been told by people that I know they say this is wrong, but God will forgive me. I say, think about what you're saying. You know it's wrong. That means it's not good for you. But you're going to do it anyway. So you really don't believe that, first of all. And so since you really don't believe that it's really wrong, then why would you ask God to forgive you? The point is you really won't. You won't go to him. Because just to say those words, forgive me, Lord for continuing to live in this way. Just those words are convicting because they don't carry any repentance, really. It's, no, 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 God is not pleased here, you see. Don't live in this naivete. You must question your own profession of faith at that point. Because God hasn't called us for impurity, but holiness. And he gives us, you see, his Holy Spirit. To disregard this, disregards the fact that he gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not not a coincidence that this Spirit is called Holy Spirit. He's holy because he's holy, yes, God. but, but, But holy also because he brings holiness to those to whom he comes. That's his his purpose, you see. And he brings this holiness. And, and here, I think, is the key to the, to the passage. Because he enables us to know God. You see, Paul says, when you behave in this fashion of, of sexual immorality, you're behaving as if you don't know God. But you do know God. As he says in Ephesians 4, we've been deceived. But you haven't learned Christ this way. Take off the old self. Put on the new. This is how we've learned Christ. You see, he, the Holy Spirit brings this revelation to God to us, he, the very presence of God. He opens our eyes that we can see him, that we can know him. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, it, it means that his kingdom is a glorious one. He wakes us up to that fact. You see, all sin is really has a very heart of unbelief. I don't believe that what God has said or what God has promised it is really true, is really satisfying. I don't think that's it. Sin comes to us all the time and says, this is way better, Satan. This is way better than what God has promised. I know God has said that your life will be good and, and, and all of that if you, if, if, you, if you sexually intimate only with your lifelong spouse. 
But look at her. Look at him. What would that be like? That'd be way better. At that moment in time, you see, we don't know God if we choose. And by that I mean we don't believe him. We don't think his promise is true. We don't believe his word is that brings us to that which satisfies, you see. And so the Holy Spirit, you see, is holy, comes to us and says, no, 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 no. This is God. It's a glorious kingdom. His wisdom is wiser than anything else. He is good, you see. He wouldn't lead you other than in paths of righteousness that are, that are good and satisfying. That's really, really true. Do you? Yeah, you probably don't. But I'll tell you. I tell myself that countless times every day. When I'm up against things that are contrary to that, which is true. I pray, God, unmask these things for me. Let me really see the reality of it. Sometimes I don't and I sin. Sometimes I do and I still sin. And then there's repentance. Real repentance because I realize it was wrong. But I tell myself that countless times. Every day. No, 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 no. I know what that appears like. I know what that sounds like. I, I, I know that, it, that I think it feels really good to lose my temper right now and just blast away. <laughs> but no. I know that it would be great to give in to that thought, but, but, but that's a lie. God will satisfy. See? Because I know him. And, and I know I can pray because I know that the cross took the penalty of my sin and its power. One of the, one of the poetic expressions of Charles Wesley that says, actually summarizes all of Romans chapter 6 in a little expression is that he breaks the power of of canceled sin. When you read Romans 6, just write that at the top. Canceled sin means the penalty has been paid. The the punishment, the guilt of, of the sin has been canceled because of the blood of Christ. But not only that, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Sets the prisoners free, you see. I tell myself that. Countless times, every day, because it generally doesn't feel that way. It generally feels like I'm compelled to sin. But the Holy Spirit comes by way of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and makes Christ known to me. That's what he does. He reveals Christ to me. And in his revelation of Christ, he says, it's a glorious kingdom. The penalty's been taken. The power's been broken. Now, be holy. I must say, 
if you're in a sexual relationship with anyone other than your covenanted spouse, break it off. That's the will of God for you. Whether it's actual, whether it's mental, break it off. God will satisfy your longings His way. Let's pray, Father in heaven. I pray that you would grant grace. I don't mean to make excuses for us, God, but you know that we live in a culture that thinks we're either crazy or immoral. And so I pray that you would help us, me, help us, to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Even in this area, that we might be holy. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.